Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. Father, thank you so much for letting this flow smoothly and be a blessing to your people. Let them have eyes to see and ears to hear. Prepare them for the days to come. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are going to continue with the faith path in action, number two. And we're going to start off with expectation in faith. And this is uh, given by Anonymous 12.12.23. There is something I had been praying and trying to believe God for for a while now. And I know he can instantly answer this prayer and he can instantly provide because he owns everything and can do beyond our imagination. However, it hasn't manifested into the physical realm yet. Well, so our our faith must be tested until we get rid of doctrinal and imaginary loopholes as to why we will we'll not receive our request. You know what I'm talking about. Stuff you, you know, got from the other kingdom and uh, need to get rid of, right? Mark 11 and 24 says, Therefore I say unto you, all things whatsoever you pray and ask for, believe that you received them, and you shall have them. So, he goes on to say, this experience was an answer to why this prayer hasn't been manifested physically yet, and uh, I felt it is also relevant to healings, deliverances, and all prayers. I saw a bright gold light as a path or a connection between me and God. Well, let me say that this path to God and His answers to prayers is available to all because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But all have not faith. And... um, which is a gift of God. It's uh, to whosoever will, but few have that will. God works in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. And uh, Psalm 65 and 4 says, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causes to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. John 6 and 44 says, No man can come unto me except the Father that sent me draw him. Amen. Okay. The path and connection have always been there and always instant when we believe it. It was uh, understood that a few people have actually connected with him in this way. It was understood 
that only a remnant of those that will be with him in eternity will experience this connection with him on earth. Well, Hebrews 11 and 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to be well-pleasing unto him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that seek after him. So he answers prayer. It was an instant connection with God where he hears everything we say and he instantly responds. The connection is beyond perfect and greater than we can imagine. Well, i just tell you my own testimony. Uh, I've been having this connection with the Father and the Son for some time. It used to be that I had to wait for replies from Him uh, in a word or dream or scriptures or some other way. And now it's uh, an easy conversation, and uh, I hear them clearly. Uh, Eve says she has this experience too, and I believe that all of the bride will experience this at the restoration. Um, he said the path hasn't long, wasn't long, but so short and closer than I can describe. With this path or connection, we are instantly heard and our prayers are instantly answered. Well, let me say that God gives you an answer, but there's a timing for some things, obviously, and it has to be that way. Uh, but it's still answered, and you're to believe that, and you're to accept that. So even when Father says yes, there is a perfect timing for some things. And First uh, John five fourteen and 15 says, And this is the boldness which we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he heareth us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions which we have asked of him. So it takes knowledge of his will to base solid faith on, which many Christians do not have, nor do they seek after it. He went on to say, give uh, Isaiah 65 and 24, And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Yes, that's the way a lot of things are going to happen, especially in the future. You remember when the man-child ministry started with Jesus, how instant a lot of things were. Not everything, but a lot of things were instant. And um, that's the way it's going to be with the coming man-child ministry and the bride that comes up afterwards. So I saw this path or connection has always been there for, for every human. Well, we are born into sin and the Adamic nature, but we are innocent because of ignorance. And at that time, we have our best connection to God, believe it or not, unless we are born again. When you're born again, then, of course, you get a better connection to God, but you're to continue on that path, and a lot do not. They sit down on a pew, and they settle in. So our spirit which would connect us to God, dies through sin uh, as we grow. And uh, that's just the natural way. So 
The rebirth of our spirit through the gift of faith opens this path to him. And he says, Jesus made this path before the world's foundation, and he already has made the connection for every prayer to be heard, every healing to be manifested, and everything to be instantly answered. Well, let me say, as we have studied in uh, quantum physics or quantum mechanics, we see that this is true. The whole creation is set up to answer our prayers. So, he has already paved the way for all these things and greater, and he has given everyone instant access for this. Through faith in the promises, this comes to pass, right? And he gives John 16 and 23, And in that day you shall ask me no question. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if you shall ask anything of the Father, he will give it you in my name. Amen. I saw this, and it was so perfect, and everything was already complete, and because of his grace, that is through faith, we always have access to his holy connection and uh, path, because Christ already made it. However, I then came out of this pure path connection, so I could see the instant holy connection But there were fallen angels standing in between me and God on this path. One of them specialized in doubt and unbelief, another in rejection and unworthiness, and I, I forgot the other ones. But I knew that I had been listening to these lies of doubt and unworthiness of God, keeping my prayer from manifesting in the physical. I had doubt that it was really God's will because it wasn't manifested yet, and doubt that I am worthy or deserve to have it manifested. Yeah, that's a common problem. Because I was listening to the thoughts and feelings of these demons, even in the tiniest amount, They were then allowed to stand between me and God's blessings manifesting in the physical. It was this part of me, a carnal and yet-to-be-perfected state of myself, standing in between my prayers being answered, because Jesus had already made the path for all prayers, blessings, and all holiness to manifest, and that through our faith, I will say. He even has already uh, made the path for us to all manifest Jesus a hundredfold in the physical. We aren't waiting on God to move. He is waiting on us to get in line with Him and what He has already done. This is true. It's, it's already written. Uh, we are the only ones blocking it. It isn't the demon's fault. The demons can only do what we allow them to do. They aren't the ones stopping anything. It's us. As soon as I confessed the doubt, uh, unworthiness, and rejection, etc., the demons instantly moved off of the path and out of the way, and the perfect holy connection was manifested again. So there you go. There's the key. Don't consider these things as a part of you. They are not a part of you. 
you see Jesus in the mirror. Jesus is a part of you. This old man died when you went down in the waters of baptism. By faith, right? So I'll read that again. As soon as I confessed the doubt, unworthiness, and rejection, uh, the demons instantly moved off the path and out of the way, and the perfect holy connection was manifested again. As soon as I told them to go, they had to go. And as soon as I confessed this sin, separating me from God's blessings, being manifested, all blessing blockers left because of what Jesus has already done. Yes, that's very true. I understood that these demons will keep testing me with thoughts and feelings of doubt until I overcome them fully. But I have to always be on guard as the devils use some truth and sugarcoat it to make it sound fine, uh, and they are good at pretending to be God with His voice and twisting His word. So as soon as we agree with them, it blocks us from the full 100% instant holy connection and communication with God that He has already prepared and paid the price for us to have. True. It was also made known to me that Jesus paid the price for all humans to have this instant connection. But majority don't want it. And majority of those uh, that do want it don't really want it 100% in full because they want to hold on to even little sins that block this. It's true. And they're distracted by the things of the world, I might add. No. So now we all need to be in agreement with God without opposition, doubt, or unbelief. This is forged on the altar of our sacrifice of self to allow Jesus to complete the intercession and manifestation on our behalf. So let's stand in faith to this whole word together for all our needs uh, to be met. And they were already met at the cross, and we're just entering into those by faith, right? Amen. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to share with you about authority over demons. Um, we have authority over powerless demons. That's right, powerless. Luke 11 and 20. But if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God come upon you. When the strong man, uh, the word man is actually not in the original, it was uh, added in later, and Jesus was calling the devil the strong when he was spoiling the devil's kingdom. Yes, everywhere he went, he was calling him the strong. Well, when the strong man, fully armed, guardeth his own court, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him his whole armor wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. We are spoiling the devil, I have to tell you. <laughs> uh he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. So, we know it actually says in Luke 11 and 21, when the strong, fully armed, 
guardeth his own court, his goods are in peace. These goods Jesus is talking about are the things that the devil, the strong, has been given authority over in this world through our sin. And the court here represents his kingdom where he, the strong, rules and reigns. But he has no more permission to do that. A lot of people don't know that. We're seeing it right here in this text. We're going to plunder him. And that's what Jesus was talking about. Luke 11 and 21 says, When the strong, that is the devil, fully armed, guardeth his own court, his, referring to the strong, goods are in peace, but when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, that was Jesus. And that's been done. He taketh from him his whole armor wherein he trusted. He has no defense. You see? Did you see that the devil has no armor? His kingdom and his demons have no armor. They have no protection against the authority that God has given to us. Their protection has all been taken away from them. It is God, in Colossians 1 and 13, said, who delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We're not under the power of darkness. You see? He gave us authority over the devil's kingdom. And as his servants, we are to fight his battles. Luke 10 and 19 says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall in any wise hurt you. Well, notice that this has already been accomplished. It isn't something that we have to accomplish in the future. God has given us authority to partake of everything that Jesus did at the cross. And Colossians 1 and 12 says, Giving thanks unto the Father who made us meet. And the Greek there is made us able or competent. Who made us able or competent to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, just a sanctified person who is walking in the light. We have that. He made us able to partake of that. So, whatever a saint in light is entitled to, God made us able to partake of that. So, you lack no ability. You need to do the work of God, as shown in the light of the Scriptures, right? And as a baby Christian, I was devouring the Word day and night, and since I had no scriptural background or training from man to overcome, I was seeking to act out what I saw. So as a baby Christian, I didn't know much about demonology, but I was casting out demons because I saw it there. I had nobody to tell me you don't do that nowadays, you know. And I cast the demon of alcoholism out of my dad, for instance. And he he went everywhere bragging on God because he had tried everything and failed. He went to AA, self-help, and, and all failed, you know. So don't worry. 
Babies sometimes make mistakes, but it's okay because it's part of learning. God made you able to do this, and the people of God and the demonized need you, so put on your armor and go to work, right? Ephesians 6 and 13 says, Wherefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Withal, taking up the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. If you know and understand that they have no power, your shield of faith will be powerful. And uh, Philippians 4 and 13, I can do all things in him that strengtheneth me. Jesus made us able to be a partaker in whatever we need. He made us able to plunder the devil's kingdom. And the devil's kingdom is wherever he rules or his curse reigns. And wherever the devil has ability, we have the ability to take it away from him. The devil has no power except what we give him in our ignorance. Do you remember when Joshua and Caleb were seeking to bring the children of Israel into the promised land? After spying out the land, these two said that their enemy's defense was removed from over them. Well, that's what we're doing. We're going into this promised land of this body that we got here. And we're casting out the old um, old man who lives there and all the lusts of the flesh that lived there, right? So this defense includes the demons. Numbers 14 and 9 says, Only rebel not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. In other words, we're going to eat them up, right? Their defense is removed from over them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. So all that the other ten spies could see were the giants, They were huge in their eyes. They didn't have that faith. But Joshua and Caleb saw that the enemy had no armor. That's the way we have to see the enemies of God's kingdom. It makes no difference whether those enemies are the lusts of the flesh, works of darkness, demons, the devil, or whatever. Their defense is removed from over them. They have no power against the word of God. Jesus was the stronger who came and took away their whole armor, as we saw. Jesus crippled the devil and divided his spoils. And those spoils of the devil's kingdom are all the the places where he has taken advantage of your life or taken authority over the things or the circumstances that God has put in your hands. And all these add up to spoils. What he once possessed, you take it. When he possessed your flesh, you now take it from him. Your spirit man rules, right? So when Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, Acts 10 and 38, are we not to do the same? He was a demonstration to us. He was spoiling the devil's kingdom. If you're being oppressed of a devil, remember Jesus destroyed this oppression 
and he broke this power everywhere he went. Whether it was hunger, sickness, demonic possession, mental weakness, it didn't make any difference. Jesus broke the oppression, and he told us to do the same thing because he said in Matthew 12 and 30, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. You see there? This scattering basically means that if you are not chasing the devil and his demons, you will be running from them. The devil's power over God's people rests in the fact that they don't know that his power has already been broken, and they don't know the authority that's been given to them. And although the Word speaks it plainly, it, is, it still has to be a revelation that you pick up and do something with it. The Bible says of Jesus that uh, in Colossians 2 and 15, having despoiled the principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. <laughs> yes, triumphing is not winning the victory. Triumphing means celebrating the victory that's already been won. That's what it means. Jesus triumphed over the devil, and he rubbed the devil's nose in what he had accomplished on the cross. The victory was at the cross. What came after the cross was the triumph. 2 Corinthians 2 and 14 says, But thanks be unto God who always leadeth us in triumph. That's a celebration of the victory already won in Christ, and maketh manifest through us the savor of his knowledge in every place. So we are to simply celebrate his victory and go about doing what he did, right? Well, what we need to do is repeat what the Word says about our circumstances or our situation. And we do that by stating what the Word says about our authority and our righteousness. All we have to do is believe that. The devil wants us to look at ourselves and our weaknesses or failures and the curse around us, but we just need to remember that we have authority over that curse because of Jesus. Galatians 3 and 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's the curse that comes upon you for breaking the law. <laughs> That's what it is having become a curse for us. He became a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. We've been crucified with Christ, and we're not alive anymore. Now it's Christ who lives in us. Have you read Galatians 2 and 20? I have been crucified with Christ. Do you believe it? And confess it. It's the good confession, right? And it is no longer I that live, but Christ living in me. And that life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith, the faith which is in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we need to be confident, like Paul, that Jesus is in us to do this job. And this is the gospel that we must be unveiled about. 
that Jesus is in us to live the Christian life and do the Christian ministry. 2 Corinthians 3 and 18, But we all with an unveiled face. If you have an unveiled face, you have to get that because you read the Word of God and found out just what I've said. <laughs> That's an unveiled face. So, but we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. So notice, seeing Jesus in the mirror by faith causes us to manifest his glory in us. And when we remember what the Word of God says about us and about our circumstances, we can celebrate the victory. Triumph. Demons cannot enter a person just any way or time they want. You have to open a door. Maybe you have opened a door. Most people have in their past before they came to the Lord and sometimes even after they come to the Lord. So you have to open that door. They suggest thoughts to you, fiery darts that are contrary to the word of the Lord and meant to burn you, basically. And when you accept those thoughts, you can be inhabited by them in oppression or worse, possession. Contrary to popular simplistic opinions, the demons can reside in your flesh and oppress your soul, or they can reside in your flesh and possess your soul if you sin in your thoughts. And God can reside in your spirit and possess your soul. See, they're coming at your soul from two different directions here. So don't say a Christian because a Christian is the spirit man. The Christian is not the carnal man. The carnal man is not a Christian. He's an enemy of God. You say a Christian can't have a demon. Well, that's true in a way. Your spirit man can't have a demon if you're a Christian. But your flesh man can because he's not a Christian. <laughs> and God can reside in your spirit and possess your soul because you are full of his word, right? So we have the authority to resist the demon's thoughts and so win the battle for holiness. Ephesians 6 and 16 says, With all taking up the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts, or evil thoughts, of the evil one. So when you have faith that Jesus delivered you from sin, you do not have to fall when tempted because you are shielded. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Your offensive weapon is the Word of God. You can slice a devil up with it. And when you have faith that you are saved and helmeted from the mind control of Satan, because the Word says in Colossians 1 and 13, who delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So your heart and mind is protected when you believe the gospel. And you can cast down vain imaginations that come to destroy you. 2 Corinthians 10 and 4 says, 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty before God to the casting down of strongholds, the casting down of imaginations, and every high thing that is exalted against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So a stronghold is a position that the devil or the enemy can make effective war against you from. Like in all wars, he sends disinformation to make of no effect your strategies. And by casting down imaginations that are against the uh, word, you're safe. In not permitting in your mind thoughts that are against the word of God, you are resisting the devil. And the Bible says in James 4 and 7, Be subject, therefore, unto God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice, if you resist his thoughts, he will flee, meaning in terror. If you permit the devil's disinformation thoughts, he has a right to bring the curse on you. If you believe you're sick when the Bible says you're healed, he has a right to put the curse on you. If you act in every such way that you know is because you believe you're sick, then you, he can put the curse on you. You are not sick. By whose stripes you were healed. Believe and act on what the Word says. Revelations 22 and 18. I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto them, God shall add unto him the plagues which are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and out of the holy city which are written in this book. Mm-hmm. So we don't want, that's why we read the word of God. We get our mind renewed so that we can agree with God and disagree with the devil and his thoughts. So he had to get Eve to question the word to cause her to fall. Genesis 3 and 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord got, had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said? He was questioning what God said, right? You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. Well, no, he just pointed, he twisted, he tweaked it, and so on and so forth. He talked about that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which, by the way, if you're born again, you need to partake of that tree. Because you can do it. But Adam was a natural man. He didn't have all the ability or knowledge of the scriptures or anything. So the law just made him to be judged. Another problem that uh, is that many will not use their authority and fight for themselves and others. They just don't know why God won't do it for them, right? But that's what they believe, so that's what they get. There isn't any place in the New Testament we are told to pray to Jesus to cast out demons or for him to do anything with the devil. Jesus said, It is finished. And in John 16 and 33, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you may have peace. 
In the world, you have tribulations. In other words, you're going to be tested. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Yeah. It's all been accomplished at the cross. God delivered us out of the power of darkness and healed us. For by whose stripes we were healed. It's already done. And now by faith we take the authority He gave us and cast out demons. Or we can do without. A lot of people just muddle on through, you know. But they don't have to. It's in the Word of God. They haven't bothered to check. They haven't bothered to look. We have been uh, delegated the authority of Jesus over the devil. He wants us to be sons of God. And we won't learn any other way than to take His authority and use it. Authority is the right to use God's power. In John 20 and 21, Jesus therefore said unto them again, Peace be unto you, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. And Luke 9 and 1, And he called the twelve together, and gave them power and authority over all demons, and to cure diseases. And Luke 10 and 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall in any wise hurt you. All right. He delegated his, his authority to us, and we don't use it. God's will will not be done. It won't be done through you. It might be done through somebody else. He's delegated the authority. We have to use it. Matthew 28, 18-20 says, And Jesus came to them and spake unto them, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. You see, what he gave them authority to do, he gave us authority to do. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So notice, according to this verse, what Jesus commanded the early disciples, He commanded us today. So He told us in Matthew 10 and 8, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. And Mark 3 and 14, And He appointed twelve, that they might be with Him, and that He might send them forth to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So if He gave it to them, He gave it to us. He said, make disciples. Are you a disciple, or are you just loosely called a Christian? A disciple is a learner and a follower. <clears throat> so He told us to cast out demons, not to pray to Him to do it. Mark sixteen fifteen through 18. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to the whole creation. 
He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that disbelieveth shall be condemned. And these signs shall accompany them that believe. In my name they shall cast out demons. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall in no wise hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. There you go. And that we, he spoke that to us, notice, right? And if you do pray to God to cast out someone's demons, he will do what he has done all through the New Testament. He will use someone with faith to do it, right? <laughs> Somebody else with faith. Okay? So who better than you? who knows the problem and is supposed to be faithful and obedient. And you're there and you're with the problem. Time to do something, right? James 4 and 17. To him therefore that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. We are to be on the front lines and are forbidden to give place to the devil. Ephesians 4 and 27. Neither give place to the devil. So we're commanded to withstand the devil's works against us and our brethren with our faith and authority. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober, be watchful, your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom withstand steadfast in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are accomplished in your brethren who are in the world. So he's walking about looking for somebody he can take down, right? So withstand him with your faith. Say, no, you don't have that authority over me. I'm plundering you. So who has the scriptural right to deliverance and healing, etc., which Jesus called the children's bread? right? Although God can give these benefits to others, they are guaranteed to God's children. First John 5 and 16 says, If any man see his brother sinning a sin not unto death, he shall ask, and God will give him life for them that sin not unto death. Well, notice that when we sin, we are entering into spiritual death and are in need of life which comes in many forms, like healing and deliverance. And there is a sin unto death, not concerning this do I say that he should make request. In other words, the one who sins unto death has no kingdom benefits, and you're wasting your time. So what is a, a sin unto death? Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says this, this is just one example. Uh, for as touching those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fell away, it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance. I would say that's a sin unto death seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Yes. 
So notice that baby Christians can't sin a sin unto death. But when someone who meets these conditions falls into sin, especially willful sin, they can be reprobated. And you ultimately will not succeed to deliver them. And I have seen this in factious people where there was no way to deliver them. They had no mind to turn to God or to obey His Word. Zero. So how can we sin unto death? If a person stays in willful sin, they will spiritually die because they have no sacrifice. Hebrews ten twenty six through 29 says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more a sacrifice for sins. So, some people in willful sin ignorantly believe that the blood covers everything. But we see here that Jesus didn't bear the curse for this sin. So we have to, and people do. It's uh, Certain judgment comes for these people. Verse 27, But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire which shall devour the adversaries. Oh, certain judgment comes on those who are in willful sin. And 28, A man that hath said it not, Moses' law, dieth without compassion on the word of two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment think ye shall he be judged worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. So if they receive that under the law, what will happen when you're trampling on the Lord, right? Who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Preachers have turned grace into a license to sin with impunity. And for this they will be judged. Praising God is triumphing over the devil. It's celebrating the victory. Praising God is not necessarily singing songs. And some songs that you sing in church don't really praise God anyway. And many songs don't even confess the word of God. They don't celebrate the victory. And as a matter of fact, a lot of them just confess the problem. So we're not under the curse anymore because in Galatians 3 and 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree that upon the Gentiles might come the blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Jesus bore the curse. You want to know what the curse is? Deuteronomy 28. Read it. There's a pretty good list there. Not complete, but it's pretty good. So he became accursed for us so that we could have Abraham's blessings. So how was Abraham blessed? Genesis 24 and 1 says, And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Ooh. And Galatians 3 and 15, Brethren, 
I'll speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant. Yet when it hath been confirmed, no one maketh it void or addeth thereto. So now to Abraham were the promises spoken, and to his seed. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So the promises were spoken to Christ. They were given to Christ. And they are ours as we abide in him. Notice this. This is very important because some people think God put these promises in your hand and you can do with them any way you want. They're in Christ. Now this I say, a covenant confirmed beforehand by God, the law which came 430 years after doth not disannul. That's an old English word. It really means annul in our language. He doesn't annul. The law which came 400 years later does not annul the promise of Abraham so as to make the promise of none effect. So we still have the Abraham covenant promises and the law did not annul them. Many are deceived about this. And uh, for if we if the inheritance is of the law, it's no more of promise. But God hath granted it to Abraham by promise. So now we're celebrating the victory that he already accomplished. Jesus said in John sixteen and thirty three, In the world you have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And he said in John 19 and 30, it is finished. That's what we have to remember when we look around us and we see the very opposite. We're here to do something about that. If we apply the word to the problem, we're going to spoil the principalities, the powers, and the rulers of darkness. Ephesians 6 and 12. The Bible says when Jesus took away the devil's armor, he divided the spoil. In Isaiah 53 and 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. So be strong, saints. Spoil the devil. God will give you his portion. And Jesus said in Luke 11 and 23, he that is not with me is against me. And he's talking there about those who are dividing or plundering the spoils. If you are with Jesus, then you are going to do what he did. And what he did was plunder the devil. All of his physical life, he plundered the devil. And by his victory over the devil, he made it possible for us to plunder the devil's kingdom. And we should be spoiling the devil's kingdom. We should be destroying the curse around us. We should be bringing people into victory by putting faith in their hearts. We should be delivering those who are captive by casting out demons. And we should be delivering those who are oppressed of the devil by healing the sick. We should be doing everything our Lord Jesus did. 
Jesus went on to say in Luke 11 and 23, He that is not with me is against me. That's a lot of people. A lot of Christians, too. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. That's what they're doing. They're running from every curse and the devil. And uh, they're moved by the devil. They're not moved by the Spirit of God. So you're either going to be gathering or you're going to be scattering. And that means you are either going to be on the attack or you're going to be on the run. (laughs) You're going to be doing one or the other. And sad to say, most Christians are on the run because they don't understand what Jesus did and they don't read the Bible to find out. So um, they need to know. They don't understand what their position is in this world. We believers are on the attack. We're going into the promised land to take this land for Jesus. And not a man can stand before us. James 1 and 5. Excuse me. Joshua 1 and 5. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Most Christians don't understand that the victory has already been given to us. So, saints, get into the battle. It's going to spare the woman for the wilderness teachings through the man-child reformer. How do I know that? Well, listen to this. Revelation 12, 7 through 11. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels going forth to war with the dragon, and the dragon warred and his angels. Notice who is carrying on the physical battle in the heavens. It's your angels. Oh, people say, oh, no, we can't have nothing to do with angels. Silly people. It's the angels who fight for you. And they prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast down, the old serpent, he that is called the devil and Satan. In other words, his dominion over the people of God was broken. And the deceiver of the whole world, yes, he has. He wants to talk you out of your benefits. He was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast down with him. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, Now is come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Why? Because somebody was casting the devil down. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accuseth them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they loved not their life even unto death. So who did the overcoming here? The angels were carrying out the warfare because the saints were overcoming him. Because they believed in the sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. In other words, what they spoke out of their mouth. And they loved not their life even unto death. 
And Marie Kelton just had this vision here. This is, uh, we called it Satan Cast Down. She said, during the meeting, while we were worshiping, I had an open vision of a dark angel with white wings falling from heaven. And I saw this multiple times throughout the worship. And I heard this scripture, Luke 10 and 18. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan fallen as lightning from heaven. Now, when did he say that? When he sent his disciples out and they came back rejoicing that the demons were subject unto them. They were casting the demons out. How awesome. Thank you, Father. Thank you. All right, so Brother Michael's coming too, and he's going to share. And um, we bless you, saints. I hope you pick up this sword and swing it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, thank you, Brother David, and God bless you. Hello, saints. Good to be back with you again. Let's go to the Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus. Lord, I ask that you open up our eyes to see that you're bigger than anything that we could ever imagine or think in our minds. And that there is no hindrance to anything that you want done for your chosen. And I thank you, Father, to take our blinders off to see that you're a bigger God than whatever we can imagine. And I thank you, Father, for doing that. And teach us, Lord, to believe what your word says and not what theology has taught us over the years, religion has taught us over the years. And Father, I thank you for doing that. Open up our spiritual eyes to see the wonders of your word and what you have in store for your people. And I praise you, God, uh, for doing that in each and every one of us in Jesus' name. Well, I want to talk about, uh, first I want to give you some of John G. Lake. Uh, the man was, uh, had a powerful ministry. Uh, and, uh, y'all heard all of this before about John Lake. So I'm going to get right into it. It's called the love of Jesus healed the sick and afflicted. He says, take the shackles off of God. Jesus did not heal the sick in order to coax them to be Christians. He healed because it was his nature to heal. The multitude surrounded him. His love gushed forth like an electric billow. Luke 6 and 19 says, For power came forth from him and healed them all. Some modern evangelists have degraded divine healing by making it a teaser to bring those desires of healing under the sway of their ministry. Jesus healed both saint and sinner to the dismay of his apostles who had not yet grown to the soul stature of Jesus. They reported to Jesus in Mark 9, 38 and 39. John said unto him, Teacher, we saw one casting out demons in thy name, and we forbade him because he followed not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man who shall do a mighty work in my name and be able quickly to speak evil of me. He met a man at the pool of Bethesda, a paralytic. The man didn't ask, did not ask for healing. 
Jesus went to him and said, Wouldst thou be made whole? John 5 and 6. Well, here Jesus was asking for the privilege of healing the sufferer. He healed him, and his love compelled it. Later, Jesus met the healed man in the temple and said, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing befall thee. John 5 and 14. Jesus' action is a perpetual rebuke to the priestcraft who endeavor to use the possibility of the individual's healing as a means to force him into the church. The outgushing of his love for the world burst all bounds. And four times he healed multitudes. But some say, well, that's just Jesus. No apostle had such an experience, they say. When Peter went down the street, as the evening shadows fell, when his shadow reached across the street, Acts 5 and 15 says, They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that as Peter came by, at the least his shadow might overshadow some one of them. The clear inference is that they were healed. And James, writing to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, not the little group of Jews constituting the kingdom of the Jews, but the whole body of the nation of Israel scattered throughout the world, both the ten tribes kingdom and the two tribe kingdom, shouts in James 5, 14 and 15, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, not to prepare them for death, but that if he have committed sins, it shall be forgiven him. He is coming into his own. Healing was the evidence of God's forgiveness. Heaven's testimony that their sins were remembered no more. Take the shackles off God. Enlarge your theologies to Christ's standard, and the world will love and worship him forever. Jesus' healings were not always instant. Faith is a large factor in regaining health in one of the letters received from readers. This question is asked, why are not all persons healed instantly as Jesus healed? The writer of this letter is mistaken in thinking that Jesus always healed instantly. A case in point is the healing of the ten lepers. As they went, they were cleansed, it says in Luke 17 and 14. The healing virtue was administered. The healing process became evident later. Again, Jesus laid his hands on a blind man and then inquired, What do you see? The man replied, I see men as walking trees. His sight was still imperfect. And then Jesus laid his hands on him the second time and they saw clearly, Mark 8, 23 through 25. Healing is by degree, based on two conditions. First, the degree of healing virtue administered or power administered. Second, the degree of faith that gives action and power to the virtue administered. Hebrews 4 and 2 says, The word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. God passes on powers to cure, 
to all followers. Jesus not only healed the sick, but performed a creative miracle on the man born blind. See John chapter 9. Being born blind, it is self-evident the eyes were not a finished creation. Otherwise, he would have seen. The narrative reveals that the blind man did not know who Jesus was. Jesus did not make himself known until after the miracle had been performed. Now, let us analyze the incident. Jesus discovered the man born blind, verse 1. He then spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. Why? Because Jesus was a fundamentalist. The story of creation in Genesis says that God formed man of the dust of the ground, Genesis 2 and 7. Jesus, in finishing the creation of the eyes, adopted the same method. He stooped down, took up some dust, spat on it, put it on the blind man. This was not healing, it was a work of creation. And in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, it is said that in distributing the gifts of the Spirit to the members of the church, one was given the gifts of healing and to another the working of miracles. 1 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Healing is the renewal of the body from diseased conditions. A miracle is in the creative order. The case of the blind man was an exercise of creative authority, not the restoration of diseased tissue. The man was made whole. The grouchers made their kick. The Pharisees examined the man and asked, Who healed you? He answered, I know not, John 9 and 12. It is clearly evident to students of the of divine healing that sometimes the Spirit of God is ministered to the sick person to a degree that he is manifestly supercharged with the Spirit. Just as a person holds a galvanic battery until the system is charged with electric force, yet no real and final healing takes place until something occurs that releases the faith of the individual. A flash of divine power is observed. A veritable explosion has taken place in the sick person and the disease is destroyed. This tangibility of the Spirit of God is the scientific secret of healing. A diseased woman followed Jesus in a crowd. She knew the law of the Spirit and had observed that it had flowed from the person of Jesus and healed the sick. She was convinced it must also be present in his clothing. So she reasoned, if I could but touch the hem of his garment, I would be made whole. That's in Mark 5, 28, Matthew 9, 20 and 21. She did so. She was healed of a 12-year sickness that had baffled physicians and left her in poverty. Now, Jesus was aware that someone had been healed, and he turned to ask who it was. Peter said, See how the multitude is thronging and jostling you? But Jesus answered, Someone has touched me, for I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. Jesus was aware of the outflow. The woman was aware of the reception. Her healing was a fact. Here faith and the power of God were apparent. It was a veritable chemical reaction. Healing always is. 
And I believe the reason that people do not see the possibilities of divine healing is that they are not aware of its scientific aspects. The grace and love of God in the soul opens the nature to God. The Spirit of God resounds. When the Pharisees asked the man who had been born blind, what do you think of him? He replied, he's a prophet, John 9 and 17. Later, Jesus found him and said to him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Verse 35. And the man replied, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe on him? Verse 36. And Jesus answered, He it is that speaks with thee. John 37. The struggle of the centuries has been to free the soul of man from narrow interpretation. Jesus has sometimes been made to appear as a little bigot, sometimes as an imposter. The world is still waiting to see him as he is. That is Jesus the Magnificent, Jesus the Giant, Jesus the Compassionate, Jesus the Dynamic, the Wonder of the Centuries. Take the shackles off of God. Let him have a chance to bless mankind without ecclesiastical limitations. As a missionary, I have witnessed the healing of thousands of heathens. Thus was Christ's love and compassion for a lost world revealed. And thus the writer was assisted into the larger vision of a world redeemer whose hand and heart are extended to God's big world. And every man, saint, and sinner is invited to behold and love him. Jesus used science to heal the afflicted. The law of contact and transmission was the medium through which the master wrought miracles. Mrs. John W. Gowdy of Chicago writes, How can you speak of divine healing as scientific if healing is through the atonement of Jesus Christ? How can the matter of atonement and grace be considered scientific? Atonement through the grace of God is scientific in its application. Jesus used many methods of healing the sick. All were scientific. Folks, science is the discovery of how God does things. Jesus laid his hands upon the sick in obedience to the law of contact and transmission. Contact of his hands with the sick one permitted the Spirit of God to, in him to flow into the sick man. The sick woman who touched his clothes found that the Spirit emanated from his person. She touched the hem of his garment and the spirit flashed into her. She was made whole. Mark 20, or 5, verses 27 through 29. This was a scientific process. And Paul, knowing this law, laid his hands on handkerchiefs and aprons. The Bible says that when they were laid upon the sick, they were healed. And the demons went out of those possessed. Materialists have said this was superstition. It is entirely scientific. 
the Spirit of God emanating from Paul transformed the handkerchiefs into storage batteries of Holy Spirit power. And when they were laid upon the sick, they surcharged the body and healing was the result. Acts 19 and 12. This demonstrates, firstly, that the Spirit of God is a tangible substance, a a heavenly materiality. Secondly, it is capable of being stored in the substance of a handkerchief as demonstrated in the garments of Jesus or in the handkerchiefs of Paul. Thirdly, it will transmit power from handkerchiefs to the sick person. Fourthly, its action in the sick man was so powerful that the disease departed. Fifthly, the demonized also were relieved. Both the sick and insane were healed by this method. While the scientific mind always asks how and why, it is not necessary for the soul desiring Christ's blessing to have any knowledge of the scientific process by which healing or salvation is accomplished. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and 40 and John 13 and 20, He that receives me. Now folks, men receive Jesus Christ into the heart as one receives a lover. It is an affectionate relationship. Men obey him because they love him. They obey him because they have received him affectionately. He has become their soul's lover. His love and power in them redeems them from sin and sickness. And eventually we are promised in his word he will also redeem us from death. Redemption from sin, sickness, and death constitutes man's deliverance from bondage to Satan and his kingdom. And establishes the kingdom of heaven, folks. The Bible shows Jesus healed the sick by his word. And he exercised authority over disease by speaking to those afflicted. Now we've discussed Jesus' healing through the laying over hands. Now we will examine Jesus' healing by the word command and other methods. They brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, that's the faith of those who brought the man as well as that of the man himself. And the scribes thought to themselves, this man, Jesus, blasphemed. Jesus met this opposition by saying in Matthew 9, 4 through 6, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, thy, son, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, Then he saith to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. The man got up and walked. No hands were laid on this man. There was no external ministry of any kind. Jesus commanded. The man was healed. They brought a man who was dumb or mute, possessed of a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the man spoke. And the people wondered. This also is his exercise of a spiritual authority. When Jesus commanded, the power of God entered and ejected the demon. At Capernaum, a centurion came saying, Lord, 
My servant lies at home sick of the palsy grievously tormented. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered, Not so. Speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. That is enough. And Jesus said, Go home, it's done. And the record shows that the servant was healed in Matthew 8, 6 through 8, and 13. Many have laughed at the idea of man being healed long distances from the one who ministers in Jesus' name. But here is a clear case, and the God anointed may still command God's power. To the needy, distance is no barrier. I now present mass healing. Four times it is recorded in the Gospels that he healed multitudes. There went out a virtue from him, and he healed them all, it says. There was no personal touch. That's in Matthew 12, 15, uh, 15, and then Matthew 14 and 14, Matthew 15 and 30, and Matthew 19 and 2. God is not confined to methods. Heaven bows to the soul with faith anywhere under any condition. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely, it says in Revelation 22 and 17. Again, Jesus said, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 18 and 19. John 16, 24. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. That's what Jesus said. The apostle James gave command that elders of the church should pray for the sick and anoint them with oil. All is a symbol of the healing spirit. And this is the command. James 5 and 14 and 15. Pray for the sick that they may be healed. Where? Anywhere. When? Forever. As long as Jesus Christ reigns in heaven. As long as men on earth have faith in him, the voice of Jesus still is heard saying, Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. John 14 and 13. Matthew 7, 7 and 8 says, Ask, seek, and knock. Find Jesus. Mark 9, 23. All things are possible with God. And all things are possible to him that believes. Divine healing through prayer is as old as the race of man. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, records the healing of the wives of the heathen king in response to the prayer of Abraham. That's in Genesis 20 and 17. The second book of the Bible, Exodus, gives us the terms of a distinctive covenant between the nation of Israel and Jehovah Rapha. The Lord thy healer. In this covenant, God not only agreed to heal the people when sick, but not to permit the sicknesses of Egypt to touch them. Its terms are, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes on this condition, the Lord agrees. I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord 
that heals thee. Exodus 15:26. Under this covenant, the twelve tribe nation lived, listen, without doctors or medicine for 450 years until the nation of Israel had an army of 1,100,000 and Judah an army of 500,000. Figuring on the same basis as the number of Americans in the army during the World War, this would give Israel and Judah a combined population of between 25 million and 30 million. King David of Israel gave the most extraordinary health report that history records. He said in Psalms 105:37, there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Such historic data should go far to convince the world of our day that an absolute trust in God is not only a safe policy, but a most scientific guarantee of national health. In this connection, we must examine Israel's national constitution as it was made the basis of national health. Firstly, its basic principles were the Ten Commandments. Secondly, it contained a law in which the Lord held perpetual title to the land. Thirdly, a credit and mortgage statute. Fourthly, a distribution of surplus wealth statute. Fifthly, the most extraordinarily uh, the most extraordinary labor law ever written. Sixthly, an absolute, an absolutely equitable tax law by which every citizen paid one tenth of his increase. This is the only national constitution given directly by the Lord and is the foundation of all national constitution. For keeping this constitution, the Lord guaranteed the nation against wars, pestilence, poverty, destructive droughts, and lastly, I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. It says in Deuteronomy 7 and 15, the broad scope of divine healing in Israel is the basis of all faith in God for healing and was the foundation of the ministry of Jesus Christ, Israel's Redeemer and the world's Savior. Israel had been kept free of disease for 450 years through divine healing. Outside of Israel, there was no divine healing. No other religion in the world possessed healing power. There's not a single instance of this power in the life of India, Egypt, China, or Africa. The Hebrews alone from Abraham onward exhibited the power of healing at this time. Later, knowledge of Israel's God and his power to heal disease spread through the nations of the world. The prophets of Israel were marvelous men of God. At their word, empires rose and fell. Life and death obeyed their will. Earth and sky entered their call, and before their eyes, future history marched with events of the present. No men of any other nation equaled them. No bibliotheca of any other nation compared with their holy scriptures. Christ came as God's gift to Israel and Israel only. To Judah, the remnant of Israel, he came. Despite all that has been imagined and written of miracles in his childhood, there is not a particle of evidence that he performed any miracles until at Cana of Galilee. He turned water into wine. 
the Bible states this miracle was the beginning of miracles by Jesus. That's in John chapter 2. Jesus performed no public ministry until he was 30. The law of Moses forbade it. So we read that when Jesus was about 30, he came to John the Baptist and was baptized. His baptism was his dedication of himself to the Heavenly Father. He dedicated body, soul, and spirit. To John, he said, into all righteousness. He was dedicating himself to God to reveal the righteousness of God. Jesus' dedication was wholly unselfish, but his dedication in itself was not sufficient to qualify him to reveal God. His humanity must be submerged in the Holy Spirit. As he was baptized in Jordan, this took place. Now he must be tested. He was led of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. This is to find out if this was to find if his dedication was a fact or if he will fall under the 40 day test. Three temptations were applied. Firstly, a psychological temptation to his mind, love of acclaim. Secondly, a spiritual temptation applied to his spirit that he might be by a simple acknowledgement of Satan, secure all the kingdoms of the world. When he conquered, the natural result took place in himself. Having overcome, the consciousness of inherent power was radiant in him, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, it says in Luke 4 and 14. Now, Jesus now makes the next advance. He proclaims his platform. Returning to Nazareth, he boldly declares, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. No more waiting for the release of the year of Jubilee. Jesus Christ, the eternal Jubilee, was at hand to save and heal. Jesus' ministry of healing and the marvelous faith in God that he exhibited in miracle working were no accident. Miracles must be his very breath. For 800 years before his birth, the prophet Isaiah had proclaimed, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and then shall the lame man leap as a harp and the tongue of the dumb sing. Isaiah 35, 4 and 6. So to be Savior of the world, he must be forever the miracle worker of the ages, the death destroyer, the finality of revelation of the majesty, power, and mercy of Jesus. The very name Jesus was a miracle. The angel announced it. Jesus' birth was a miracle. His wisdom was a miracle. His life was a miracle. His teachings were miraculous. He lived and walked in the realm of the miraculous. He made miracles common. His death was a miracle. His resurrection was a miracle. His appearances after death were miraculous. His ascension was a staggering miracle. His pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost was the outstanding miracle. It was the one event 
in which his whole saviorhood climaxed. Out of heaven was given to his followers the spirit of the eternal to do in them all it had done in him. Sin, sickness, and death were doomed. He came as a roaring tempest, as tongues of fire crowning the 120 as the living eternal spirit entering into them. He proclaimed his triumphant entry into man through speaking in languages they knew not. His deity had lifted them into his realm, transfigured, transformed, and transmuted. Jesus bestowed the power to heal upon his disciples in Luke chapter 9, verses 1, 2, and 6. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them forth to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And they departed and went throughout the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. He likewise bestowed power to heal upon the seventy. Luke 10, verses 1 and 9. Now after these things the Lord appointed seventy others and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself was about to come and heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Now in order to be fully informed on the question of divine healing, Let's study this question as part of a fully rounded development and life of Jesus. In beginning his revelation of the life of God for and in man, Jesus chose the order of nature as the realm of his first demonstration. One, Jesus turned the water into wine, John chapter 2. Two, he stifled the waves, Luke 8 and 24. Three, he walked on water, Matthew 14, 25. These revelations of power over nature, each surpassed the other one. And then Jesus astounded his followers by turning to the creative life of God. He fed the multitude by an act of creative power when he created fish and bread to feed 5,000. This shows the distinction between healings and miracles. Miracles are creative. Healing is a restoration of what has been. Jesus now advances into a new sphere, the order of sickness. Here he meets the mind of the other that must be conformed to his. Jesus heals Peter's wife's mother. This is the first degree healing. Jesus meets the blind man and heals him. This is the second degree healing, Mark eight forty-two and 26. The lepers are healed, healing in the third degree. See Luke chapter 17, 11 through 19. And again, Jesus enters the creative realm and creates eyes in a man born blind. Blindness from birth is evidence of an unfinished condition of the eyes. The creative process was not complete. Jesus stooped, took dust from the road, spat on it, and put it on the man's eyes, and in so doing, he finished a work of creation. The man saw, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Now, Jesus again advances. This time, he chose, he chooses the order of death. He raised the daughter of Jairus, dead, a few minutes. That's the first degree, Mark chapter 5, 22 and 24. Then, 
Jesus meets a funeral procession coming out of the city of Nain. He commands the young man to live, and he sat up. This man was dead for many hours. That's the second degree, Luke chapter 7, 11 through 15. His friend Lazarus is dead four days. His body is in a state of decomposition. And Jesus commands Lazarus to come forth. He who was dead arose. This was the third degree, John 11, 1 through 15. Now, Jesus again steps into the creative realm and announces his coming death. He declares of his life, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. John chapter 10, verse 18. And through this chain of successive abandonment to God, we discover the soul steps of Jesus. Every step was taken with reliance on the word of God as the all-sufficient guide. Jesus took the promises of God in the scriptures and permitted them to work out in his soul. Therefore, his promises to us are not made on his own speculation, but because of his soul's discovery of the mind of God. But he didn't let it rest there. He took each discovered promise and worked it out. He discovered the promise of supply and fed the multitude. He discovered healing power and made the blind to see, the deaf to heal, and the lame to walk. He discovered the promise of man, the master, when anointed of God, and he stilled the waves and turned the water into wine of life ever present, and he raised Lazarus and the widow's son of life everlasting, and he rose himself from the grave. He gave his promises as discovered and demonstrated truth. And he tells us these things shall be ours as we are lifted by the Spirit into the God realm and the Christ conscious realm. But it is the one real thing among the myriads of life's illusions and contains in itself man's future hope and his transcendent glory. Herein is the true dominion of man. We have followed Jesus through the continued ascents of his earthly career. And Jesus has developed in faith and knowledge and in favor with God and man, Luke 5, uh, 2 and 52, at every step. If we were to stop at this point and refuse to follow him to the throne of the universe, we'd miss the whole purpose of his life. Divine healing and every other outflow of his holy soul would be beggared and perverted if we failed here. Christianity is not a mere philosophy. It is more. It is very much more. Christianity is not simply obedience to beautiful commandments. Christianity is not only the acceptance of glorious promises. Christianity is a divine content. Christianity is a heavenly dynamic. And Christianity is the ultimate of all consciousness of God. Christianity is wholly supernatural. Christianity comes down from heaven from the innermost heart of the glorified Christ. Christianity is in the innermost and uttermost of man, declaring, I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death, Revelation 1 and 18. Christianity is the spotless descent of God into man and the sinless ascent of man into God. The Holy Spirit is the agent by whom it is accomplished. 
The significance of Jesus' death was not in his sacrifice only, but also in his achievement in the regions of death. He took death captive. He liberated those who in death waited his coming and deliverance. Jesus took them in triumph from the control of the angel of death and transferred them to his own glory. David prophesied he ascended upon high. He led captivity to captive. He gave gifts unto men, even unto the rebellious also, that they might know the mercy of the Lord, Psalm 68 and 18. Peter declared in 1 Peter 3 and 18 and through 20, because Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, that aforetime were disobedient, when the long suffering of God awaited or waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few that his eighty eight souls were saved through water. Unless we fail to comprehend the source of his ministry in death, Peter says again in first Peter four and six, for unto this and uh, for unto this end was the gospel preached even to the dead, that they might be judged indeed according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. The apocryphal book of Nicodemus relates this. Jesus came to the regions of death, released the captives, and proclaimed liberty. It was this marvelous experience of Jesus in death ministry that produced in his soul the glory power of the resurrection, not only his personal triumph over death, but the release of those held in death's chains. In all the universe, there was none with such triumph in his spirit as Jesus possessed when death's bars were broken. With power heretofore unknown, he commanded his followers, saying, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Glorifying in this amazing ascent in consciousness, he instantly found the eleven and breathed on them, saying, Receive ye the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20 and verse 22. This was Jesus' endeavor to lift them into the same soul triumph that he enjoyed. The ascension the ascension was a further advance in triumphant consciousness, climaxed by his presentation of himself at the throne of God, where Peter said he received from the Father the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2 and 33. This was Jesus' divine equipment as world of Savior. And from then on, he was empowered to administer the transcendent glory power to all who would receive divine healing, saving power. The empowering of the Christian soul from on high is the pouring forth of a Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ, high priest of heaven, that we may realize the uttermost of ultimate transcendence of the soul of Jesus in glory, hear him declare anew in Revelation 1 and 18, I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Who would not rejoice to place himself in the hands of such a savior and a physician? Answering forever the world's question, is he able to heal? 
Does he ever heal? Does he always heal? And to all, we boldly say, yes, he is Jesus, triumphant, eternal, and omnipotent. Jesus called his 12 disciples and commanded upon them power and authority to cast out devils and heal disease. He superseded this by declaring, if you shall ask anything in my name, it shall be done. The first was a limited power of attorney. The second, unlimited. This unlimited power of attorney was authorized before his crucifixion. It was become effective when the Holy Ghost came. On the day of Pentecost, this power of attorney was made fully operative. The Spirit came, first legally, they had his word, then vitally he sent his Spirit. Peter and John instantly grasped the significance of the name. Passing into the temple, they met a beggar crippled. He was 40 years old and had been crippled from birth. Peter commanded, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk in Acts 3 and 6. Heaven's lightning struck the man. He leaped to his feet, whole. A multitude rushed up and they demanded, in what name, by what power have you done this? Peter and John replied, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you slew, whom God raised up, Acts 3, 12 through 16 matchless name. The secret of power was in it. When they used the name power struck, the dynamite of heaven exploded. Peter and John were hustled off to jail. The church prayed for them in the, in the name and they were released. They went to the church. The entire church prayed that signs and wonders might be done. How did they pray? In the name. They used it legally. The vital response was instantaneous. The place was shaken as by an earthquake. Tremendous name. Jesus commanded this. He said, go ye into all the world. What for? To proclaim the name. To use the name. To baptize believers. How? In the name. Amazing name. In it was concentrated the combined authority resident in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Almighty name. The apostles used the name. It worked. The deacons at Samaria used the name. The fire flashed. Believers everywhere forever were commanded to use it. The name detonated around the world. More Bibles are sold today than any other 100 books. Why? The name is in it. It's finality. Philippians 2, 10, 11 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess. Prayer in this name gets answers. Moravians prayed, or Moravians, I should say, and the greatest revival till that time hit the world. Finney prayed, and America rocked with power. Hudson Taylor prayed, and China's inland mission was born. Evan Roberts prayed for seven years, and the Welsh revival resulted. An old black man, Seymour of Azusa, prayed five hours a day for three and a half years. He prayed seven hours a day for two and a half years more. Heaven's fire fell over the world and the most extensive revival of real religion in this century resulted.
Mark 16, 15 through 18 says, He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believes not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. And lest healing should be lost to the church, he perpetuated it forever as one of the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. To one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of Spirit. And to another, diverse kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. The church was commanded to practice it. Is any one, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any married? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James chapter 5 verses 13 and 16. The unchangeableness of God's eternal purpose is thereby demonstrated. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever, it says in Hebrews 13 and 8. Malachi 3 and 6 says, I am the Lord and I change not. God always was the healer. He is the healer still and will ever remain the healer. Healing is for you. Jesus healed all who came to him. He never turned anybody away. He never said it is not God's will to heal you or that it was better for the individual to remain sick or that they were being perfected in character through the sickness. He healed them all, thereby demonstrating forever God's unchangeable will concerning sickness and healing. Have you need of healing? Pray to God in the name of Jesus Christ to remove the disease. Command it to leave as you would sin or search your divine authority and refuse to have it. Jesus purchased your freedom from sickness as he purchased your freedom from sin. 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his body upon the tree, that we having died unto sins might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were, past tense, healed. Therefore, mankind has a right to health, as he has a right to deliverance from sin. And if you don't have it, it's because you're being cheated out of your inheritance. It belongs to you, and in the name of Jesus Christ, go after it and get it. If your faith is weak, then call for those who believe and to whom the prayer of faith and the ministry of healing have been committed. You'll get healed. Praise God forevermore. That's the end of the article. We're out of time. God bless you. Hope to see you again next time. God willing. Can quench
my thirsting soul. Pure as water made me whole. Let your streams of mercy flow, O、oh, Jesus. I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For、oh, your mercy stands and your word is true, O、oh, Jesus. Jesus.